Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy, history, and the community to listen, learn, and take action. A special thanks to the Blog Talk Radio team for featuring this show all day today on their homepage. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, please continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com and on my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. In fact, like my page. Well, the show last week provided you with an overview of the genes teachers. And this week, this week we will focus on a community. The title of the show is Genes Teachers and Their Community Organizing Work to Build Rosenwald Schools in Durham, North Carolina. And my guest is Joanne Abel. She is an adult programming and humanities librarian at the Durham County Library. She worked on her thesis and was persistent enough to develop a thesis with a title, Persistence and Sacrifice, Durham County's African-American Community and Durham's Genes Teachers Build Community Schools Between 1900 and 1930. So let me give a warm welcome to Joanne Abel to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Joanne. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Bennett, for having me here. Well, thank you so much, and I'm just so excited to hear of your research. So tell us, how did you get interested in the Jeans Supervising Teachers of Durham County? Well, I was looking around for a topic for a master's paper, and this was the summer of 2008, and a local historian sent an email around the neighborhood saying, did you know that Durham had 18 Rosenwald schools? Well, I didn't know that we had that many. I wasn't even clear exactly what a Rosenwald school was. And um, 
I quickly found out that Julian Rosenwald, a Jewish uh, immigrant who's president of Sears Roebuck, set up his own foundation in 1917 to help African-American communities build schools in rural areas. And as I begin researching, I keep founding little hints about the gene supervising teachers who did the work organizing and fundraising for these schools. And I actually found out that I, I found their sto story even more interesting because even though these women, and 94% are women, or the genes teachers were women, they were rarely mentioned even when the Rosenwald schools were discussed. And it's super important to preserve the Rosenwald schools that exist, and we can talk about Durham's later. But I think it's just as important to remember the gene supervising teachers and the men and the women who sacrificed to build these schools. Well, you know, I'm I'm really glad that trying to understand the Rosenwald schools took you to the genes teachers. But one of the things I'd like to know is before we even get into the Rosenwald schools, give us some background. What were the public schools like at the beginning of the 1900s in North Carolina? And and then how did African American education change during the New South education reforms? Well, it's really quite a sad story because there were very, very few pu public schools out of the cities in, in the South before the Freedmen's Bureau set up schools which were for black and white children, even though a lot of white children didn't take advantage. So the public, the, the public school movement really began um, across the state in a formal way. At, well, after the end of Reconstruction, it kind of fell apart, and then it began again in 1900. And it was part of the Democratic Party's campaign to solidify um, its taking away the black vote and disenfranchisement. And the leading party candidate was Charles Aycock, who became known as the Education Governor. And it was a sobering fact to me that the campaign for white supremacy, though if you've heard of the Wilmington Massacre in, in the couple of years before, that was sort of the beginning. And the 1900 campaign was sort of like the result that it disenfranchised black voters and was based on the improvement of the public schools. And the New South reformers wanted graded public schools, certified teachers, longer terms, and they felt like this would bring the South back into the um, into the nation and also improve their economic uh, conditions. So they began building schools pretty much, they had been log cabins for everybody. But by the 1900s, they started building new schools for white students. And, and often the black schools were, it was really interesting, they were either the torn down white schools that were rebuilt as the black, the new black schools, or they were recycled, like the the students just all of a sudden were black students instead of white students, and they were called the new black schools. And the other interesting thing I found that until um, 1903, each school had its own committee made of three men who were responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the schools, including the hiring and firing of teachers. After 1903 the black schools were placed under the control of white committee men who had responsibility for white schools. And it appeared to me that this was a way to remove black committee men who had seats on their local school board committees. So with none of their own representatives, after 1903, 
African Americans in Durham had no formal authority over their schools or who would teach in them until 1937. Wow, what you know? What I'm just listening to you because you mentioned the Freeman uh, Bureau and at least the construction of schools of which people could you did see in 1870. If you looked at some some of the census, and you would see in school. And I guess yep. the question was, well, okay, they're in school, but what kind of schools? But then you're saying during Reconstruction there was an attempt to after say no after Reconstruction. Forget that. You know, we're going to separate these schools. So yes, we'll mm-hmm. we'll allow you to go to the to the old school and call it the 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 I guess the Negro school now, but it's still not a new school. It's exactly. a log cabin. Yes. Yes. So that that was really you know it was sort of sad that the new quote the new South meant the destruction of of some independent structures that the African American community had already in place. Too. That's right, because you're also talking about some of the churches and and the role that they played in the education of African Americans back then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you worked on your research. Well, tell us where did you look to find information on the Durham's jeans teachers? That was that was I think the most frustrating part because the jeans teachers had to do so much documentation. They had to documentate. They they wrote at least usually four reports to the different um, agencies that funded them and that they reported to. They wrote to um, they wrote to their local superintendent in the schools, and then they had to write to the um, in Dur- in North Carolina. It was the um, Department of Public Instruction, the Division of Negro Education. And then they had to send a report to the, this is the yearly reports, to the National Genes Teachers um, Headquarters in Virginia. Usually it was in Virginia the longest. And then if there was any other funding agency like the Agricultural Extension Agency or the Health Department, they sent their fourth report there. Now they also did monthly reports to the state agency and the school board. So I thought the logical place to look first would be in the school board minutes. Well, there is no mention of the uh, Jeans Teachers Report in any of the school board minutes from 1900 to 1930 when I stopped my research, even though the white elementary supervisor was mentioned often and her reports were often quoted. So the school board minutes didn't help. And I got those at the the Durham County Library where um, I should mention there is a, if you go to the durhamcountylibrary.org and go to the tab, the North Carolina tab, there's a web display called the Women Who Ran the Schools that would give you more information about this too. But anyway, then I went to the state archives, the North Carolina State Archives in Raleigh, and I would go through the Division of Negro Education file. And it was amazing. From 1915 to 1930, which is the genes period that I looked at, I found one surviving report from North Carolina, and that was Miss Carrie T. Jordan. And what was scary to me is there was a little note attached to some of the files that said that the, 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 these files had been weeded in 1960. And I just wonder what had been thrown out. That's right, which, which is very sad. So you found one report of all the documentation that perhaps was developed, only one survived. Is that, is that what you're saying? 
That's what I'm uh, from Durham County. There were a few from other counties, but not very many. And then I also I thought, well, since they had to report to the, um, since they worked with, from the other from the other research, I knew that they were received funding from the Cooperative Extension Agency. So I worked with the uh, librarians at A and T and NC State, which were the Cooperative Extension um, Land Grant Colleges. A and T University being the African American one, and North Carolina State being the white one, and they didn't have any records. I also went to Clark University in Atlanta because the Southern Education Foundation records from 1882 to 1979 were there, and it actually says in their founding age, I'm going to read this to you because I thought this was so funny, well documented is the Jeans Teacher Program funded in 1908 by, by the Rural Negro School Fund, also referred to as the Annotee Jeans Fund. The project continued into 1968. The focus was helping to improve the educational programs in the South, but they didn't have any information on the individual supervising teachers. Mm -hmm. It was all about the men and the you know the bureaucracy and all that. So it, it was just really sad. The one place I didn't go, but I worked with the um, librarian there because it's the Rockefeller Center Archives in Sleepy Hollow, New York, has the um, general education board records, which could have had some genes teachers, but the and it's, you have to it's hard to get get in there to get, do research. And the librarian there said she really didn't think there was any individual teacher reports, which is where you'd really find out what was going on. That's but right. Yeah. Well, you have a there, there are two questions coming out of the chat, and you can continue uh, sharing with us what you want on the jeans teachers. But one of the questions is that you mentioned the white elementary supervisors. Were they mm -hmm. also jeans teachers or simply teachers in the public school? Um, the white supervisors, after the jeans teachers were hired, the, um, the, the, it's sort of interesting. My understanding is the white elementary, the white schools also felt like they needed a supervisor, and so they hired when they were hired later in the mid 20s, at uh -huh. least in Durham County. And uh -huh. the African American jeans, I mean, the jeans the teachers basically functioned as the superintendent of the African American school. Okay. So she really was the the schools didn't get. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It wasn't until the 20s that they went up to high school, and they only went to 11th grade. So she was really supervising all the black schools mm -hmm. in the county. Now, Durham City had a very famous high school that was the second accredited black high school in the state called Hillside Park High, which is still is still in existence, still has its name, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Now, you, yes. Now you mentioned that you went to Clark University, A and T, mm -hmm. NC State, Sleepy mm -hmm. Hollow, and did you go? To I didn't go to Sleepy other? Hollow. You didn't Sleepy go to Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. Okay. They told me that the archive that they didn't think the librarian said that she looked through it for me and didn't see any. See, I was wanting the words of the teachers. Yeah. I wanted to hear what they had to say. So I also found I went I talked to the wonderful people at the Fisk Rosenwald database to see if they had any information. They said they had about the schools but not the teachers. Mm -hmm. So the other places that I actually found information was the local newspapers in Durham. I used the city directories to find out what the jeans teachers were doing before they became the supervising teachers. And um because one of my 
the one of the teachers I'll talk about later had a connection to Morris Brown. I used some research from there, and then the Durham School Board minutes, and then the surprising place that I found some was at Duke University Rare Book um, Room, where they had one of the early teachers at Duke was one of one of the Jean's teachers. Um, a person who really helped her get her stuff, and in his papers, I found a letter. It was the second Jean's teacher's, um, Annie Day, and I actually found a letter that she had written him, and so that was a completely wonderful, unexpected thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the best archives were, the best place I found things were the North Carolina State Archives and the local school board minutes and the newspapers. Those were the, the most things came from those those sources. And when you talk about the most things, for give us the some most examples. information. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The most information that I found. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another question coming out of the chat. Was there special training or cert- certification to become Jean's teachers? There. That's a great question. Um, they had to have at least a normal school degree, which was, uh, you know, beyond high school. But most of them in North Carolina had a college degree. They had the four-year degree. And there was not special certification. Um, There's a lot of writing where they said they did not want a um, teacher with a sociology degree. They wanted a rural woman. But all of the Durham, um, all of the Durham Jeans teachers were city girls and had uh, degrees from liberal arts uh, colleges and um, were uh, very educated and not you could you could from the things they did they they were very self assured and confident and I have a sense that was what most of the jeans teachers were um, but there was no separate certification no separate certification but, at all but it, for a lot of this time you could teach with a high school you could teach elementary school if you had graduated from high school mm-hmm. and one of the things that the jeans teachers did was run summer schools to get teachers that just had high school education, college credit, normal school credit, and then to move the normal school teachers up through, um, like in it, here they encouraged the teachers that they often had summer schools at North Carolina Central University, which is called North Carolina College for Negroes then, and Shaw. Those were the two big schools that did a lot of, um, Shaw University and Raleigh did a lot of teacher training. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you find out as far as the the length of time the students would be in the class? Was it a typical nine month type of situation? No, uh, no. Okay, tell us tell it us what not, the typical education would look like back it, then. It started off. It was it's small. Durham was unique, and it had the same the okay the same legal school session for for black and white schools, but it really varied over this period of time. At the beginning, I think it was as short as four months, and at the end it moved up more closer to seven. I don't actually have that figure here, but that one of the things that the Jeans teachers did work on was to have extended school days and mandatory attendance. That was a There was a big campaign in North Carolina um, to make schools attendance mandatory because, you know, when the harvest, when the tobacco harvest came, everybody was out of school to go harvest. But one of the letters, I'm so glad you whoever asked that question, is that your question? Yes. Um, 
when I was in the archives, I found a letter from a gentleman from Alamance County, which is the next county over. This is the archives in Raleigh, and he he wrote he was writing the the um, the, the uh, superintendent of public instruction, urging him to support the mandatory attendance rule because he said, "I was born in slavery. I am now a farmer and a teacher, and I know how important education is." And he and he. And it was just so eloquent. And I thought, I'm holding in my hand, you know, a letter written by someone who had been an enslaved person who was, who was you know, making his case before this, you know, this, this uh, official of the state government. And it was just really powerful. And I couldn't use it because I was just working in North Carolina, in Durham. But it was, it was very powerful. And there's a lot of letters like that. When you, you, know, you know, when you're in the archives, you find these jewels that you... It, it just I had to get up and walk around and breathe deeply because it was such a powerful letter that he wrote. So the there was the Jean's teachers were very involved in lengthening the ter school term and making sure that the children were legally the parents could legally say my children need to be in school. Yes, and it's so empowering. I mean, the community had to to stand behind that and to support uh, lengthening the school year and the mandatory attendance because education was so important at that time. I mean, that's part of freedom to be educated. And so it's really good that those types of letters uh, are at the archive and you at least found one of those letters. Now, there's an, another question coming out of the chat. Did Virginia Randolph, the first jeans teacher, leave oh. any papers behind, or are they available for research? I found a lot of things written about her, but I don't, I don't know. That is a wonderful question. I would hope that somewhere in Virginia that they would have her papers. I have a beautiful picture of her. I um, mean, she's holding a book. It's just—it's a lovely portrait that somebody painted for her, uh, of her. But I don't know. But I have some wonderful quotes about her. I mean, she was just—she just seemed. I'm, I'm, I, that's wonderful because the whole Jean's program was based on her work in Henrico County. Yes. So that's yes. a good thing for someone else to do research on. Yes, it definitely is. Another question coming out of the chat is, has anyone interviewed any students of a Jean's teacher? Yes, there is a documentary of Georgia Jean's teachers. We we are, this is kind of getting ahead of us, we have one Rosenwald school left in Durham. And we, with working with um, North Carolina, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, we are in the middle of completing a oral history of the students that attended that last Rosenwald School, and many of them are in their 80s. So they, I have asked them to say, and so yes, some of the last Jeans teachers, there are people that remember them. And I don't know, I haven't heard all the interviews if they have been taught. Because the last, the Jeans teachers, Durham had Jeans teachers until the mid-60s. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, oh, I look forward to, to reading what the teachers had to say. Now, uh, who was Dr. Aaron Moore, and how did uh, he work to get Jeans supervising teachers in Rosenwald schools for Durham and, and North Carolina? He he is just an amazing. He's he's one of the other unsung heroes of this story. 
Um, there, one of his descendants is working on a book about him, but you know, Durham had so many uh, the Black Wall Street and the black uh, wonderful leaders. But he's the one that I found the most interesting. He was co-founder of North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance. He co-founded Durham's African American Hospital, Lincoln Hospital, in 1901, and the um, Durham had his own colored library from at 1913. And in, so he was very active in a lot of a lot of um, activities in Durham to further the uh, community. But in the thing that I found, I found a, a letter that he wrote uh, April 30th, 1915. He wrote. Negro Rural School Problem, Condition Remedy. And he it was a call to arms, and he really wanted to do something to improve all the, the, the educational opportunities for all children. And he wrote, he, he was chairman of the North Carolina Teachers Association, which was the black teachers organization. And he decided that what needed to happen was that they needed to fundraise enough money to hire a state inspector of schools who would go around and really see what the schools were like and issue reports on the condition of all the schools in each, in all the county schools. And so they did this. I found the postcard that he sent out to fundraise, to raise money, and they actually raised enough money to hire an inspector. And I, had, I found one of his reports, Dr. so Dr. Aaron Moore hired another teacher whose name actually was Moore, but they're not related, Charles Moore. And this gives you an idea of the report. He would go, he would literally go around and look at each county school and then issue a report. And for Durham, in 1919, after visiting 35 counties, he said, in no other county did I find the schoolhouses on the whole in such inferior condition as I found them in this county. Of the 22 schools, only one East Durham had more than one teacher. He then said that no new school had been built in the last 10 years. Only two schoolhouses had ever been painted. Only one-third had desks, while all the rest had shaky benches cast off from the white school. And this, he said the only good thing to say about the Durham school system was it had a longer term than most. And Dr. Moore challenged, um, Aaron Moore challenged the state superintendent of schools to get the Rosenwald Fund money and to accept Gene's teachers. And I think it was a lot of his lobbying and the organization of the teachers' organization that finally pushed the powers that be to ask for Gene's supervising teachers and to start accepting um, money to buy the Rosenwald, to help build Rosenwald schools. One of the communities in Durham that had the first Rosenwald school had begun before any anybody had before any of the they they had read about it in, in the African American newspaper, so they knew the money was there. So they had already begun fundraising to make their matching grant, so they could get their school built before any of the the school board or the um, people in Raleigh had agreed to accept Rosenwald money. So it was a very proactive kind of thing. And Dr. Moore was one of the people that was the agitators and encouraged this kind of grassroots pushing up from the from the bottom to the top to say, hey, wait a minute, there's money here for, for us to improve our schools. Right, and it's just it sounds like a very, very strong commitment to education in the community. Oh, and yes. and also uh strong political advocacy 
to make yes. certain that this took place. Well, this is absolutely wonderful. Well, I'm going to put you on a quick break, and we're going to come back to continue this discussion. Quick break. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Well, you have been listening to Joanne Abel. Joanne has given us an overview of the genes, teachers, and of Rosenwald. And so we're going to continue this discussion. And, Joanne, I do have some questions coming out of the chat. First of all, has there ever been a roster of genes, teachers by state and or county? Yes, there is. Oh, what a good question. Let me... Um... I'm looking in my bibliography to see if I can give you the exact title. There is a, a genes teacher herself um, did it. She calls it the the um, list of honor, and it's wonderful. It's extremely useful. It's not totally accurate. I found a couple of things that um, in the in the archives, but it's it's the best single thing we have. And give me just one second here. Um, if you want to give me another question, I will. Um, well, certainly I will, because I want to talk a little bit more about the role the genes teachers played in construction of the Rosenwald schools. Right. Okay. Um, if you can, oh, that's a, I can do that. <laughs> um, I really want to find that book because that is the only book I found that. I believe it is. Um, let me go. The Genes Teacher Striving to edu Educate, 1995. That might be it. I don't. I have it sitting on my desk at work. The book that lists all the Genes Teachers. And boy, that is a great source. If you give, if you, I can email that to you. Can you get it to your folks that way? Certainly. Okay. Because it it. It was a great find, and I don't know, I can't seem to put it. Okay, so what was the role of the genes teachers in the Rosenwald School? Yes. Okay. In the construction of the Rosenwald, played right. in the construction of the Rosenwald School. Right. Um, well, that, that's what really got me because they were so responsible. And um, uh, Lacey Jones in the genes teachers in the United States, which is the last official uh, book 
written on them, which was written in the 30s, said, most of the work fell on the shoulders of the genes teachers. It was they who called, the urge, called attention to the urgent needs, and it was they who aroused the local community to play its part and kept the interest and enthusiasm alive until each building project had been carried to success, successful issue. And then to show it wasn't just, you know, that it was really the people on the ground, um, W.S. Cradle, who was the state supervisor of the Rosenwald Fund in North Carolina, said, quote, the Rosenwald schools across North Carolina were lar largely the results of the, Z the genes supervising teachers. And now I'm going to, the one report that I found from Carrie T. Jordan, I wanted to read how she talked about, and this is her first report, the first year she was there, how she talked about organizing to build schools. And she built over six schools were completed during her term. She said, we found many of the schoolhouses in such poor condition they were really unfit for use. And efforts were made to replace some of the worst ones with new buildings. And she described how she organized the parents to work to build Rosenwald schools, quote, by explaining to the patrons in these communities the splendid offer of Mr. Rosenwald to assist them in obtaining new buildings, much interest was aroused and people willingly pledged as they were able funds for the work. Of course, it has meant hard work, many community meetings on weekends and evenings, with quite a few educational rallies held on Sunday. At one rally alone, the people laid on the table $163. As a result of these efforts, at least four new Rosenwald schools with home economic departments will be built for use next year. Two have been put in operation this year. So that shows you some of the work that they did. And then um, she said, um, she said, uh, pictures of Mr. Rosenwald were made available by the Rosenwald Fund at a nominal cost of 150 so that one now hangs in every Rosenwald school in the county as a token of esteem which is held by both patrons and students. But I, but I said that even though Rosenwald was held in esteem, it was the African-American communities that pushed the board, had came up with their matching grants, often contributed labor and materials for the schools. Ms. Jordan reported that $1,500 were raised for the schools in 1920-1924. And she wrote how these fundraising meetings and rallies improved the general community. She wrote, these meetings held in connection, this connection served the dual purpose of securing new buildings, giving, gave me opportunity to stress matters of importance to education. The large attendance on these occasions manifest the ever-increasing interest of parents in the education of their children. Through the organization and reorganization of betterment leagues, PTAs, and other community meetings, many improvements have been made, such as painting of buildings, placing of window shades, purchasing of organs, and other special equipment for the classroom. So I thought that kind of gives you a flavor of the things she was doing to organize the community and rally them nights, weekends, and Sundays to focus to raise their matching fund for the Rosenwald School in their you know, community. This is so empowering just to hear you share, I mean, what happened back then. And it, I, it's something that I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm listening and saying, I want the parents to hear this today, to hear, <laughs> because you're talking about perhaps children of 
enslaved, people who were enslaved, who were freed, and they want their children to be educated, and they're doing everything they can. And even if it means they walk away with $125 every time they have a meeting, that's a lot of money. That was a lot of money. probably didn't have it, but they did give. They gave it because education was important for those kids. I am just... It's just such a great feeling to hear you just describe what was going on back then and the role that those wonderful teachers played to make certain that the African Americans received the education that they they did obtain. So, what were some of their other responsibilities? They, um, like I said, they were the superintendents of the schools. Basically, let me let me say one thing about the fundraising that. That Durham City, you know, had a had a had a strong middle class, but as far as I can tell, the this is in the rural area, and it was the the mill workers in the the textile mills and tobacco workers and the tenant farmers and the sharecroppers and the landowners all coming together to to raise this money, and I just I found that amazing and. And this this little statistic, and I'll talk to you about other responsibilities. From 1921 to 1929, when the main Rosenwald schools were built, the three jeans teachers, Miss Day, Miss Jordan, and Mrs. Taylor, raised a total of $5,964, and that was on top of taxes that the folks paid for the schools anyway. So that would be an equivalent of over $75,000 in $2009, which is when I did the paper. And the Division of Negro Education wrote, these monies indicate the amount raised from private donations through the efforts of the Durham Gene Supervisor. Practically all of this money has been given by the Negro people and applied to construction of buildings, equipment, and supplies. That is a lot of money. That is a lot years. of money. Yes, indeed. Eight years. Oh, but, my goodness. That That's a lot of money. So I was just astounded by that. But... Beside, um, beside, you know, fundraising, which you can tell they must have done a lot of, they, um, they were actually, no, from the beginning, Dr. Dillard, who was the director of the Genes Fund, said there were no specific rules or directions that each program, each Genes teacher was to create the program to the needs of the community. Uh-huh. And I, I thought that was wonderful because that was really, really empowering. And some of the things they did was um, get the teachers to attend summer school. I talked about to improve their certificates. And by 1923, every teacher in Durham had post-secondary degrees. 14 had college degrees and 17 had normal school degrees. They, like I said, they fundraised for books, globes, they um, organized the teachers to make sure they were all members of the Teachers Association. Mm-hmm. They um, even raised money in the later years for the Jeans International work in the Caribbean and Liberia. So not only were they double taxed for their schools, but they were raising money to help others, which I thought was extremely moving. Um, they, the early years, they did a lot of work in the World War One period, canning. Miss um, Maddie Day, the second Jean's teacher, um, signed her letters sometime as the um, canning club supervisor because food was such an important issue in, a, in the war effort that they mm-hmm. felt they were both black and white canning clubs. So they did that. They organized um, 
They work with the state health department and the state tubercul tuberculosis association. They um, showca showcase black achievements in the county commencements. Did you talk about the county commencements? Did Ms. Dr. Littlefield talk about the county commencements? No, she didn't. She didn't talk uh, in any great detail about the county commencements. So please tell us why these uh, the county commencements were such an important event. Well, that was um, that was one of the, a lot of the um, Jean's teachers did county commencements, and what they were were a showcase of black educational achievement. It would be at the end of the term, and um, they were usually in Durham. They were held in the Rosenwald schools because they were um, the larger schools and the nicer ones. And I think that for for many of the for for the Carrie Jordan, the person who I did find the report that the beginning the tradition in Durham of the countywide commencements was probably next to building the schools for most important achievement. Ms. Littlefield wrote that the county commence, county commencements demonstrate the ability to overcome great odds of little financial and material support from the local and state educational establishment. She said they were proof of academic achievement to both the black and white communities of black potential and equality. And Durham's were held at the Durham State Normal School, and I felt like that was to show these rural children here is a college, a black college where you can you can you can go there. This is this is somewhere you can go. And the first one in Durham, I, I found this incredible. The musical. This is all from the white paper. Our black papers, the, they were burned or lost. I don't have a a record of it in our, which is really sad. But in the white paper, they had. It was the one time that the Durham Morning Herald, which is the leading white paper, published five articles in April about the county commencement, giving very positive coverage of the African-American community. And believe me, there was not much positive uh, coverage. Mm -hmm. they, um, the musical presentation was by Miss Nell Hunter, who had a national reputation and would sing before, at the White House and for the King and Queen of England. Um, so it was a big deal. She would bring the best and the brightest county students to have this big celebration with, you know, international um, singers. And the, the students who went there had their names printed in the paper too. So it was, you know, it was a, a education fair and celebration that the entire community, black and white, acknowledged, which I think is amazing. And they said thousands of people would attend these events. And Durham did it after Miss Jordan did it. She did it her whole time. So it was well, a, it's a very it feels like event. something that the community was so proud of the achievement. Oh, what a wonderful thing to just read about! I want to go and find it in the <laughs> newspaper, read it myself, because it just sounds like a, a wonderful. Uh, opportunity to uh, to really just talk about the achievements and, and exactly. how people have come. You know, you've come so far, and this is just wonderful. Well, could you speak speak a bit, just a bit about the Rosenwald schools? Now, are there any standing in Durham County today? There is there is one standing. It's called it's the Russell School. It was built in 1926. And we had, I'm on the board of, of the Friends of the Russell Rosenwald School, and we have just incorporated and we are 
I believe we have just received our 501c3. The building is beautiful. It's a two-room school. They face east, uh, north, south, and, the, and the, the way you built them to get the light in, it's a lot of times they did not have electricity. They were very site-specific for how they were oriented on the lot. And this is a north-south building. It is in beautiful condition in one way. All the hardware is there. The two rooms could be divided with a, um, a divider that slid on runners and the transoms to provide ventilation still work. The outside, and it was saved by the Keynes Chapel Baptist Church. It is on, they own the property, and that church, when the school board sold it in 1940, and mm-hmm. it was used almost up to that time, the church bought it, and they have preserved it, and they have done a wonderful job, and we hope to repurpose it as a community center. It's a beautiful wonderful. little well, we have some questions coming out of the chat. One of the questions is, are there many photos of the Jeans teachers in the communities where they served? That is another excellent question. I found a funeral program picture of Miss um, uh, Taylor, who was the Jeans teacher in 1930, where I stopped. And that was the only picture I found of her. And I did not find any picture of Miss um, Day, but I, I found a picture of Carrie T. Jordan, who's the one I found the you know the whole report on, because her niece, her grandniece, is Dr. Jacqueline Urban, who taught English at Emory and retired a professor emeritus. And it was from the Chicago Defender in 1930, um, May 30th, 1952, and it shows her smiling up at her son, who was Bishop Frederick T. Jordan who was the 72nd Bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and he was on the National Board of Corps and was noted, quote, as a fervent and militant advocate for civil rights. So I think she raised her son probably like she taught her students. Absolutely. Late <laughs> fighters. And I found this out because um, I was trying to read. I knew you were going to ask me this. Um, I was looking. I was. I found some. They, the... Um, Jordan family has a scholarship that was connected to Morris Brown College, and I found out that Miss Jordan was the uh, her father was Reverend Lawrence Thomas, the pastor of Big Bethel A.M.E. Church, the oldest American, the oldest African American church in Atlanta, and a founder of Brown College, Morris Brown College. Mm-hmm. So through the connection there, I found. Dr. Irvin, who was her niece, and she sent me the picture because I really wanted to see if I could find a picture of Miss Jordan. So the pictures are hard to find, but I'm one of two of the four teachers that I did research on. They're not wow. great pictures, but they're pictures. But there are pictures. Well, yeah. now you mentioned you found several articles in the white newspaper. Did you find, did, to your knowledge, did the black press cover any of the events also? I, Absolutely sure they did. But the Carolina Times, we, our archives it begin in the 30s, and I stopped in the 30s, so it broke my heart. We keep hoping that someone's going to find the early runs of the Carolina Times and the and the paper that preceded it. I can't remember its name in somebody's archives in somebody's attic, and they'll give them to one of the universities or the libraries so we can have that incredibly valuable record. It, I just I cannot tell you how much what a different story this would have been if I'd had those newspapers from the twenties. What a I, different story. Richer I, it would be. 
Oh, yes, indeed. Well, let me just ask any of the chatters, if you would like to call in to ask a question of the guests or make a comment, uh, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1. That's 646-200-0491 and press 1. Now, we have another question coming out of the chat. And this question uh, is basically, are you familiar with a dissertation? It's called, I Consecrate Myself to the Service of Teaching, the Jeans Teacher's Study in Fauquier County, Virginia. I am not. I am not. I'm writing that down right now. I did focus on, you know, Durham, North Carolina, but I would, I would, I'm, I'm sort of collecting everything Jeans now. So oh, thank yes. you. Okay, and uh, also just tell us, I mean, kind of sum it up, what do you think the legacy of the Jeans Teachers means to us today? Oh, I think I think it, it means a lot to us. Um, you know, the, the Rosenwald schools are sort of the, the physical legacy of the Jeans Teachers and the African-American men and women who worked so hard to create a good educational situation. In Durham County, they, they built one of the best rural school systems in North Carolina, which folks said was one of the best black school systems in the South. Um, yet, you know, I, in my work, I said the black and white schools were more equal in 1900 than they were in 1930. Um, and that, you know, that's kind of a, a sad thing with as hard as the work they did. And the black jeans teachers and all the black educators in Durham County worked in a paradoxical environment because Durham was considered a rich county, and yet both the black and white schools were frequently short of funds, but the black schools always received less of everything. And um, it, it, just, it just was the, the, the working with your faith and what you had. At, um, I felt like that Carrie Jordan's annual report that I found was full of hope and pride of accomplishment. She really, you could tell, she believed she was making a difference. And I think to be a teacher in the Jim, Jim Crow South demanded a faith in the future and a belief that educa education could really make a difference in the lives of their students and the whole community. And the Jeans teachers and the African-American teachers in Durham County, they worked with what they had, but they made their lives, the lives of the teachers and the parents in the communities, the best they could be within the context of legally entrenched inequality. I feel like from reading Carrie's report, Ms. Jordan's report, that they taught a doctrine of self-improvement, hope in the future, and racial pride. They acknowledged, they acknowledged black achievement in yearly celebrations and daily victories, they um, knew that they were building schools and community and knew they, that their work, I believe, was a political act in the Jim Crow South. And I really believe that they laid the foundation for the long civil rights, they were part of the long civil rights movement, but they also laid the foundation for the people that took it the next step. So I feel like that, um, you know, they may not have had the best school buildings or equipment, but they believed in their ability to teach their children. They believed their children could achieve anything. 
and working with these hardships under Jim Crow, they compensated for the lack of material things with vision and dedication. And, you know, the Jeans teacher's motto is to do the next needed thing. Yes. And I think that's what they did. They absolutely, they absolutely did. Well, you know, because a, a large number of the audience are are genealogists and, and historians and, and just people in communities, how can they use the information that you've shared with us about Jean's teachers in their own research? Wow, I think um, I think one of the things is to talk to the elders and find out, I mean, that that's become so clear to me is how much information we have lost. And the library right now is sort of an aside, but we're, we're trying to document the experiences of people that were in the Civil Rights Movement in 1963 because they are elders now. So I would say talk and document and find people, go into attics and find, find things that find those Missing issues of papers, you know, the newspapers. What, what a, what a gift that would be, um, and realize how much we have to learn from the past, and how much the past can teach us in the present. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much. I don't have any any callers, and and uh, the chatters are not asking any more questions. <laughs> I do want to mention, however, that the dissertation was done by Dr. Donna Tyler Holly in Baltimore, okay. Maryland. So, what was so the title again? I consecrate myself to the service of teaching the Jeans Teacher Study in Fauquier County, Virginia. What a great title! Yes, it is a great title. I would love to read it myself. So let me just move into April. I'm going to share with everyone what's scheduled for April. We just have so many interesting shows every month. And kicking off our April 4th show is J. Mark Lowe. He's a certified genealogist, and he will discuss the Dower Slaves and Administrative Court Actions. Now, there are just a lot of court minutes in there. They're in chronological listing of events and persons presented to the appropriate assembly or court. And he's going to share with us the uh, rich genealogical treasures in looking at the Dower Slaves and Administrative Court Actions. On April 11th, we will have... Uh, Leslie Anderson, and she is with the Alexandria Library, and she's going to discuss the Alexandria Special Collection, and Natan Elaine Kemp will serve as the host for that show. And on April the 18th, we will have Marvin Jones. Now, you know, we talk a lot about genealogy, where he's going to begin with family history, and then take us through the history of the community. And we've talked about the community and understanding who's in the neighborhood, what's happening throughout the community, and he's going to share with us uh, the research on the Winton Triangle in Hertford County, North Carolina. And then on April the 25th, we're going to have the coordinators of the brand-new Midwest African American Institute of St. Louis. 
and we're going to have the coordinators share with us what you can expect to get out of this wonderful, fantastic institute. So I'm hoping that everyone will tune in in April every Thursday night at 9 p.m. because we have a great lineup schedule for everyone. So I just want to just close by saying thank you so much for joining me tonight, uh, Joanne Abel. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. They left footprints in the school records, the newspapers. Oh, they just left a lot of information for you to just find out more about them. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. So let's keep this conversation going at the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And also remember, every Friday morning, you will have an opportunity to hear Angela Walton Raji share news that we all want to hear on the African Roots podcast. And then next Tuesday and Wednesday, Antoinette Harrell with Nurturing Our Roots. So thank you so much for tuning in tonight, everyone. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. And all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after this broadcast. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night, Joanne. Good night.